you would please open up your Bibles to Exodus, Exodus, and we will be picking back up in chapter 25 where we left off last time we gathered, which was last week. Today, I know you're looking at this and going, the tabernacle and Exodus, that must mean he's just taking only a few verses, verses 25 and 27. No, we're actually taking three chapters. So yes, and communion today. So I hope you have your juice and your cracker ready at home as we do here that we'll be taking in unity as a church body, as a as believers, we'll be taking communion together here. <laughs> so with that said, I'm not going to have any small talk here. We're going to go right into this because I'm going to need every bit of the time to get through this. So let's just pray that we get through smoothly. Father, we again thank you again for allowing us to gather here in your name. Uh, illuminate your word to us, Lord. Bring it so brightly and so clarifying uh, to our hearts. Let us have ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us this morning, Lord, from your word. Holy Spirit, speak to us in a very clear way, and may we listen and hear and be obedient. Make biblical change here based on your truth, Lord, uh, in our lives, and then be encouraged by you this morning through and by your word. And again, Lord, just help us to go out and do the good works you put on our hearts to do, to reach the lost, to encourage those in the faith, and to serve as you lead us. We again thank you and praise you for this morning in Jesus' name, and we all said Amen, amen, amen. <clears throat> the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a movable tent. A tent of meeting that as they gathered, it's, uh, uh, the tent is, it was created uh, by God's instructions given to uh, Moses as a commandment to build according to his blueprint. <laughs> He's the great architect. He is the great builder, and he is the great uh, 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 leader of his people and for us today as believers. Moses received this detail. If you remember, uh, back in chapter 24, verse 12, during that period of time of the 40 days and 40 nights on the mountaintop experience, when he went alone that last 34 days up into the clouds, he was up there a long time, not just to receive the two tablets with the Ten Commandments on it, but he received other laws and commandments and including all of the detailed blueprints of what he needed to create for God to be able for the people to worship God. And so we will see here, as we saw, that the tabernacle and its courtyards will be constructed according to the pattern set by God and not by Moses. That's the key thing. God determined how you will worship him, not man. And so man just followed and it was obedient to God's commandments of how to worship him because God wanted to come into the middle of the presence of his people there in that desert there at Mount Sinai and dwell in there in what we call the tabernacle. And we're going to go through a lot of details of that today. So hold on, we're going to be reading a lot. The tabernacle was built approximately 1440 BC and was the place where God dwelt with his people for 400 years. 
they worshiped in this movable tent. And sometimes people panic. Well, where was, this is where we, God has, has us, and we've been here for one year or five years or ten years. I, I, God must have something more. Can you imagine dwelling in that tent and, and worshiping God and sacrificing for 400 years and not have a new church? <laughs> but God had a plan. Eventually, that was going to be the temple, as we will know as we continue in the Old Testament. We will see that. But it wasn't until the time, the Exodus, until the time of King Solomon, they dwelt within and worshipped there, and God dwelt within that tent of meaning. Not meaning God only dwelt just in that, that, that tent, but God is everywhere but his presence, his Shekinah glory, uh, hovered right there, as we will see in the scriptures, right there over the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark, and, the, uh, uh, and we will see that very clearly until King Solomon built the temple, and then that's when uh, things changed there. The tabernacle was the center of the Israelite camp, and the 12 tribes of Israel camped around the tabernacle in a special arrangement. And you'll see that in the, a picture there of the, of the tabernacle, and you'll see how they were strategically placed around the center, uh, the tabernacle. Tabernacle being the center of the, as they set. So when they went from camp to camp, as they dwelt and moved, they would set that uh, tabernacle up. Then people, according to their tribes, would place themselves strategically around that. God wanted to dwell among his people, Israelites, and he wanted fellowship with them and be able to communicate with them clearly right there. Now here in Exodus 25 verses 1 through 12 or 1 through 2 we'll see the next slide here and this next slide gives us some of the elements and the how the tabernacle is set up so that will kind of help you there. I'm not giving you here all of the pictures of all the elements. I, I de debated on that back and forth a few days but I'm just going to let it sit as is in this description and not try to give you a picture of what it probably looked like at that point in time but at least a structure of how that sets up because it's a a lot of words we're going to go through this and it will at least help you to have a picture of what the setup was but here in Exodus 25 verse 1 then the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart you shall take my offering so the Lord speaks to Moses and says to him right up front you're going to speak with the people and you're going to let the people know that there's an expectation that they're going to bring me an offering. It wasn't, it wasn't a debatable thing here. They were to bring the offering to God. It wasn't bringing the offering to Moses. It wasn't bringing offering to the actual tent, per se, or the building, the church building, as many people say. Oh, the church is getting my offering or my tithe. No, when you bring your offering, you're bringing it to God. It happens to be that God has appointed Moses and the leaders to take care of those resources that God is having you bring the offering in to do what they need to do for God's people. But it's God's, it's God's offering that you're bringing, not you know, the pastor's offering or the church offering. It is, it is God's offering that he's bringing into the place where you dwell and worship and to receive God's word. That is what he, they're doing here. And not only the fact that they were to bring, but notice here, for everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. So one of the qualifications here is that they had to have a willing heart. 
They had to have a heart that was right in regards to giving, not grudgingly, not, not, to, not, not difficulty here uh, in regards to, to the giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we see it not only in the Old Testament, but we see it in the New Testament, the right heart of giving God's offering to him. Now we notice here that God, before God even told Moses what the offering was, he told Moses to take an offering. God wanted Israel to be motivated by a willing heart more than a specific need. Our primary giving should not be primary should not be primarily because of need. We should primarily give because of our willing hearts compels us to give back to God what he has given you. That is the that's the difference. You're not told you have to, it's because you get to you get to you want to give back to God. What is God's? That's the key heart issue here in regards to uh, when it comes to giving. But God says right here is, 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 is a rich God. That's the first thing you have to understand. God is not broke here and can use any method he wants to <laughs> to create. He created the universe. He can create what he never needs right, without any man's intervention. But yet he usually uses the willing hearts of his people as a way to support his work. Why? Why is it? Why doesn't God just create it like he created the heavens and the earth? Why does he use you and I to come and be the vessels that he uses to bring what he needs for his work? It's because all of the materials for the building of the tabernacle were to be supplied by the people themselves. Why? Because God wants to develop the giving hearts within his people. He wants to, us to die of self and to give to him, which will create a giving heart. Because if you don't give, then your heart will become more and more selfish of a retaining of what you have. So God knows us and he wants us to have giving hearts, not selfish hearts. So he put, sets up these things here to help us, to test us, to say, is your heart willing to give freely and willingly and cheerfully? When we become givers and we become more like God, when we become more like a giver. Who's the greatest giver, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He is a perfect example for us of willing to give. Therefore, we must be givers. Not so much because God or the church needs our money. But because we must be conformed into the image of God's Son, we see that in Romans 8.29. So we see here that God only wanted contributions from those who gave willingly. God is not, does not like and is not interested at all whatsoever in any form of coercion or manipulation of making people give. It should never happen. That should never happen. God is not into manipulation and coercion or trying to play with your feelings to get you to give just that little bit more. 
<laughs> no. You're compelled because of the love you have for God and the, what God is doing in and through where you're fellowshipping. Or wherever it is he's leading it. But we see here that they were to take this offering. Moses was to take this offering. It belonged to God. It didn't belong to Moses. It didn't belong to the elders. It didn't belong to the, the, the anybody but its gods. And that's what we need to understand. In verse 3, And this is the offering which you shall take from them. What is it that he was supposed to gather from them? From willing hearts, the gold, the silver, and bronze. Also, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen. And goat's hair. Ram skins dyed red, uh, badger skins, and uh, uh, acacia wood. Oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. Onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod in the breastplate. So these are the materials that he was supposed to receive from the people to be used um, uh, by God for the purpose of them to come to worship, to sacrifice and to worship, and to worship as uh, you know, the high priests and the other uh, the, uh, priests that, to, uh, to be able to, to worship God properly according to God's way. And each of these materials were used in a building structure God has commanded Moses to build. Now, it's interesting is where did they get this from all of the, and being in the desert? Well, remember when we left, when they left uh, Egypt, Egypt's people gave them all kinds of things. You just, just, they were just pouring it on them to take. Then they had a war with the Amalekites. Remember that? So they had spoils that came from that war. But then there could have been the Bedouins and others that they were able to collect these things that God made sure they had because God knew what he was about to do in regards to building up the tabernacle. So God may say, how is this all going to play out? How are we going to be able to build this tabernacle? And where we? God is already preparing and working in the hearts of the people in situations, circumstances to make that all come together to be able to have the people gather together to worship him and at a place. That's why this whole thing about stay in your homes and stay divided and, and never get together is not anywhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament. They were to gather together and God is going to prepare a place for us to do that. And he certainly did that right here in the middle of this, uh, of this desert. The acacia wood. You may have noticed on the actual uh, main title slide there. That there was an acacia wood that was taken uh, by Kathleen and I when we were over in uh, Israel, and uh, a lot of people like, "What's acacia wood?" Well, and why that wood? Well, that wood was a harder and darker than oak, and it was more durable and kept uh, the wood-eating insects uh, away from eating that wood while in the desert. In verse 8 and 9, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you, make, so you shall make it. So here we see the purpose and the pattern for using for all of these materials that he's gathering to create for the tabernacle. And it's going to create a sanctuary or a holy place or a place set apart for God to dwell right there in the midst of the people. And the purpose of the tabernacle was to be a dwelling place not only for God, 
for a place exclusively for him not to live just there. He lives everywhere. He's, a, he's all, all present everywhere. But his Shekinah glory would meet the men and, 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 and the people right there in the midst of the, of, of the camp. Now that is an incredible picture if you really think that through. That many times communities were built in the day where the church was sitting in the middle of the town square and the towns were built around that church, especially in the north country. That became very apparent to us when we moved here to the north country compared to Texas, compared to California, compared to New Jersey. You could see these little towns and always in the center were the churches and the people built their houses around it and that's where they came. It, nothing. We see it played right out here in the Old Testament where he put the tabernacle right there in the midst of the people and each of the people were around here. Now the pattern of the tabernacle uh, is, uh, represents God's dwelling place here. A tent, it, it's not a permanent structure. It's temporary. God knew it was temporary. It's just a tent, and they were going to move on. It's their sojourners, remember, going to the promised land. The word tabernacle here in the original language, here is the very first place it appears right here in the Old Testament. Out of the 139 times, it's, this is the first place it's mentioned here about the, the tabernacle. And it's a place it calls to dwell, or a place where God dwells among his, his people. And it is evident that not only describes the tabernacle as finishings to Moses, but also show him something of its structure and arrangement. Notice there, just, at the, just so you shall make it. I mean, it was very specific right there according to how I show you. And we will see that. Sometimes you think, oh, God just spoke. But somehow God gave Moses in the midst, on the top of that mountain, in that cloud. He gave him a clarity, a vision of exactly what it looks like. Not just hear it and say, hold on, God, let me write this down and chisel in and figure out a way to write this down so I don't forget any details. God literally gave him an ability to write everything down in detail and see what it was to look like as we go through this. You'll see that language. Now keep in mind, the pattern of the tabernacle was according to a heavenly reality. It was a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. We see that noted in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. And they were to make this tabernacle and all the finishings exactly to the dimensions that God gave. They were not to compromise. Not even an inch. Not in the materials. Not in the way and the placements. Everything was to be according to God's Design and they were to follow that specifically uh, and, and perfectly. Now note, as we go through these, this scripture, we will see the language in cubits. Keep in mind, one cubit equals 1.5 feet or 46 centimeters. So you'll kind of get the, figure, uh, the figures out here as we do that. Now when you take a look at the tabernacle, being the very first thing here, that is the very first thing that God describes here in the scriptures of what they're to build. Right? It's a big picture. Here's what the tabernacle looks like, or uh, per se is what it is. 
And we're going to see as we look and take these into pieces, the overall Old Testament versus New Testament. It's one of the biggest questions people ask. Why do we need to know about the Old Testament? We're in the New Testament. The, the tabernacle doesn't apply to the... But let me give you the correlation because remember, everything in the Old Testament is a foreshadow or a shadowing type or symbols of Jesus in the New Testament to come. So here, right, just talking about the tabernacle, what is it? In the Old Testament, we know that it's a place where God dwelled among his people, period. That's what the tabernacle is for. In the New Testament, Jesus is God in the flesh dwelling among his people. That's, you need to make that connection. Why do we know that? Because we see that in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Go back and read Matthew uh, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Go back and, and, and ponder on Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. And you'll see that God came in the flesh and dwelt within. Here in the Old Testament, he dwelt within the tabernacle. Now we go on to verse 10. We talk about the instructions of the Ark of the Covenant, which is one of the very first elements here that is lined out where God will be dwelling. His Shekinah glory, His presence will be dwelling here. Verse 10 and 11. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. A cubit and a half its width and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. Take note of that. Inside and out you shall overlay it and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. So it's a nice little trim around the top portion of that. It's beautiful, right? So the very first item God tells Moses to build is what? The ark. The ark is a box. It's not a boat. The ark is a box here. And so it's the, the, the dimensions that we were given right then and there. It's three foot and nine inches long, two foot three inches wide, and two foot three inches in height. That was the box or the ark that was God was going to use because it's going to contain the essentials within that, uh, that uh, ark that uh, within that uh, box, it, we're going to see that God is going to put three key elements into that box in, in due time. Initially, will be the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Now, also note, later on, it's referred to as the Ark of the Covenant. Right now, it's referred to as just the Ark. And how else do we need to do in verse 12 through 15? You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark. And that ark may be carried by them. The key word, it must be carried the ark only by those those poles and the poles shall be in the rings of the ark they shall not be taken from it so once they put and built this and they got those poles in place they were to never take those poles out why because later on we'll find out that if you touch the ark you were surely going to die you could only pick up that ark by using those poles and that was it so the ark 
uh, didn't have handles. It was used to, ha to have uh, these rings and then the rings, these po uh, poles that were cased in gold as well, went through there and they were to stay there and they were to have that as a means to pick up the ark and move the ark when they needed to move it. Now remember in 2 Samuel 6, verses 6 and 7, Uzziah touched the ark to keep it from falling off the cart. Do you remember that? And when he tried to reach out and help God to protect, like God's not, God's going to allow his ark to fall off, you know. You know, God's not going to allow his ark to fall off anything. But Uzziah obviously felt like he needed to help God in that situation. And Uzziah was, uh, didn't grab the poles, of course. He grabbed the, and touched the ark, and he uh, it didn't go well for him. <laughs> didn't go well at all. So when we take a look at the Ark of the Covenant, let's make the Old Testament, New Testament connection here. You ready? The Old Testament, the high priest offers the gifts and the sacrifices for sin in the most holy place. In the New Testament, Jesus is our high priest in the true tabernacle in heaven that was made by God and not by man. That's the difference. Man was to create this for God to come into the presence there, as we will see between the cherubims on top. But for, for us in the New Testament, Jesus is the high priest in the true tabernacle in heaven, and it was made by God and not by uh, man. We see that in Hebrews 9.11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And you can go back and look at also Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 15, and 8, verses 1 through 3. Now the contents of the ark, what was going to go into that box? Well, you sh and you shall put into the ark the testimony, the Ten Commandments, the testimony which I will give you. So he had not given the Ten Commandments. He had not received those tablets yet. At this point, at, at, he was receiving directions of what he needed to build and what was going to go in there. But he had not received that yet from God. And so God instructed Moses to put the testimony or a copy of that law, the Ten Commandments, into the ark, or refer to now today, Ark of the Covenant. And God told Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant to hold that law before the law was given. And later God instructed Israel to put two other things in there. That golden pot, that, that, that vessel that contained manna that God provided. And the second one, uh, the third one was Aaron's rod that had budded. If you remember that, that was to be placed. And we go back in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 4, you will see that. But the ark was a place of atonement or propitiation for the people. So let's, again, make this connection. The Old Testament, uh, in regards to the, the, uh, the testimony or the, the, the commandments here that were to be placed in there, the law was given by God in the Old Testament. We see this. In the New Testament, the connection here is Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. That we see in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Matthew 22, 36 through 40, and Luke 16, verses 16 and 17. So Jesus fulfilled the law, all the law and the prophets, as we see in the New Testament. Here in the Old Testament, God's giving Moses the, old, uh, the, the law on those tablets, giving directions, and they will be placed into the ark as we see here. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. 
You have to make that connection between the old into the new. Now, many times people say the ark, they think of the, the box portion and the top lid on it. But those are two different things. We now call it the Ark of the Covenant because we bring them together. But the Ark was just the box. The top, the seat, was the mercy seat. And we see this in verses 17 through 22. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work, you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim at one end and the other cherubim on the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. So those two cherubims that are both sitting on either side, their faces are facing each other. But looking down at the testimony, the, the, the commandment or it, into the ark and the wings came around and reached out and the wings touched each other across the box. And in between those cherubim, in between those, those wings is where the Shekinah glory of God's presence if you can picture that, you can go back and you can do the research and look at it more specifically. But he says this is where it's going to happen. And then it's going to be those two cherubims are one with the seat, the mercy seat. It's all in one, one piece of gold. And the cherubims shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. And you shall... Put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony, the Ten Commandments, that I will give you, and there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel." So God says, I'm setting this up. This is exactly where I'm going to be. My presence is going to be here. I'm going to speak to you here. I'm going to be your presence here. I'm going to be with you. I'm not leaving. So we see that God met with Israel in the sense that he met with the representative of Israel. The high priest we will know are the only one can go into the most holy of holies there. And the most holy place. And in, in peace because of the atoning blood on the day of atonement that we will see that takes place when he does go into that place where the mercy seat is. We see that in Leviticus chapter 16 verses 14 and 15. But he says it is just amazing here as we take a look at this and the mercy seat is the place and the means of our redemption. This is where they would be of the mercy seat where they would pray and they would sacrifice and then they would put the sprinkle of the blood onto the mercy seat for the people of Israel in dwelling in those tents into, that, in, into the desert there. And it was their way of all the sin to be covered at that time. But they had to repeat this over and over, not only daily in sacrifice, but also once a year during the Day of Atonement. For the covering of the sins of all the people. Now let's make the Old Testament to the New Testament connection here when it comes to the mercy seat. The Old Testament is a place of God's presence. Yes. It's constructed of acacia wood. Yes. Covered with gold inside and out because there's, there's a covering that has to be not only from an outside perspective, but also the inside has to change as well. And in this case, God is showing there's a covering there. 
In the New Testament, the opposite, Jesus is God in human form. Two, he represents, he represents Jesus' human nature. And he also represents Jesus' divine nature as we see in him as totality, both 100% God and 100% man. Philippians 2, 6, 7. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. John 1 1 and John 1 14 a in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we see the again this connection of this of the presence of God now compared to being in this tabernacle in the presence over this 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 mercy seat this this ark. And that's where he dwelt for his people. And now Jesus in the New Testament, has, God has come and taken on flesh and has human form. And his, uh, Jesus is the human nature and also the human divine, divine nature and dwelling in and with us. Now we move on to 23 through 29. We take in building of the showbread, the table of the showbread, I should say. And we will take a look at how important this is. And it says, you shall also... Take a ta table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its uh, height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. And you shall make it for, a, for it a frame of a hand breadth all around. And you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make it for... Uh, make it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay it with them with gold that the table may be carried with them. And you shall make its dishes and its pans and its pitchers and its bowls for pouring. And you shall make them of pure gold. So we see here a, the showbread table is created here. Three feet long, a foot and uh, six inches wide, and two feet and three inches height. And so you can kind of see it's a little tiny table there. And it was supposed to have a nice little crown around it and gold. So none of the showbread would be falling off or anything like this. And they were to have rings that are there, again, at the legs so that the poles could go through and they could pick it up. Again, it has, it, it's covered with gold. You know how heavy this thing is. So you had the ability to have to pick it up. And you had to pick it up to be able to move it from place to place. Now, what was the purpose of the table of the showbread? Well, we see right here that in verse 30, And you shall set the showbread on the table before, before me always. So we know that, that on the table of showbread were 12 loaves of showbread, literally bread of faces is what it means here. And it means the associated that there to people uh, was representing those 12 loaves, representing each loaf of the 12 tribes of Israel. And according to Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 9, showbread was made of the fine flour, and they made these 12 cakes of showbread, one for each tribe, but it, they also sprinkled lightly with frankincense on it, and once a week, 
the bread was replaced and normally only the priests, which in this case would have been Aaron and his sons, would have been to come in and they would replace that bread once a week. And they were the only ones that actually could eat that bread that was left over if there was any left over uh, in between. But the loaves were a continual reminder of the everlasting promise and the promises between God and the children of Israel and a memorial of God's provision of food for the people uh, in this a time of, uh, of their worship here of God. Now we move to t- uh, verses 31 through 36, a building of the lampstand or the menorah that we refer to it today. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft and its branches and its bowl, its ornamental knobs and the flowers shall be of one piece. Now notice that. We don't know how big this menorah was, but it was large enough and it was all one piece of gold. Even the intricate, beautiful flowering looking and and it had the main shaft that came up and then it had the, the six Uh, the three branches on each side that came up. So there was a total of seven wicks or seven lightings of this, of the menorah. And it's one piece. So you can imagine the craftsmanship and the ability that uh, God gave someone or people to be able to create this. And we see there that it shall be one piece. Each uh, and six branches shall be out of its side. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side. Three branches of the lampstand, lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and the flowers. And three bowls made it like almond blossoms on the, on the other branch with the ornamental knobs and the flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand on the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond bo- uh, blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same and the knob under the second two branches of the same and the knob under the third branches of the same according to the six branches that extended from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be one piece. It, all of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. Now I could have saved you from all that language there and said go look it up. But notice the details that Moses received from God of the details so there was no question of what God's intention or what he meant by what this is to be. And what is significant piece here because the lampstand was one piece of gold all hammered out by the, the craftsmen that God raised up to do that work. And there was no specific dimensions but made of just only the fact that it had to be a single piece of, of gold. But it was a, uh, given as a pattern of what we refer to as the modern day menorah today. And we will, uh, it's amazing. And these bowls that were on top there uh, of these almond blossom looking kind of things. Again, uh, talking about the blossom, the, new, the newness, the fresh nature of God's uh, ongoing work that's going to be, uh, be a light to the people and a light to the world around them. So here in verse 37 through 40, you shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they can give light in front of it, of it. and its wick trimmers, and their trays shall be of pure gold, and it shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all its utensils, and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Again, the, 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 
when Aaron and them came in, there were wick trimmers to keep it going and it had to continually be going because the tabernacle represented the court of God's throne. Revelation 4, 5 describes the seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The seven lamps represented the presence of the Holy Spirit in heaven. That's very, very important. And they were not to deviate from those directions that God gave to Moses. Now, since the tabernacle itself was a completely covered tent, the only source of light was the lamps of the lampstand when they went into the holy place. And the very important principle here, and mentioned in verse 9 of chapter 25, is that the tabernacle's finishings were to be built according to the specific uh, revealed pattern Again, emphasized by God to Moses and the people, they are not to change the way that uh, lampstand was to look. Because again, it represented a heavenly reality that they did not know. Now chapter 26, we see here as we take a look at the coverings and the curtains of the tabernacle here. And this is where the fine linen and the color is coming in because it was describing first the elements of the holy place and the most holy place. The, 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 it represented 7% of the total space of the tabernacle. Only 7% of the actual uh, uh, element of, uh, of the, what we just described sits into this property. And we're going to talk about now the rest of it here. In chapter 26, verse 1 through 6, it says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue and purple and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim. You shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the width of each curtain four cubits. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be cu coupled to uh, one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to another, and you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain, on the selvage of one set, and there likewise you shall do on the other edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the end of the second set, that the loops may be clasped to one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasp so that it may be one tabernacle. So again, the curtains that's creating this tabernacle, creating this, the walls and, the, and everything that we're going to see up and above, we'll move on to the, the part of that goes above the, and the, above the tent or the tent portion to cover everything that we were just describing here. But the fine linen curtain that we see the tabernacle was a tent. Remember, it's a, and with a frame and a series of elaborate coverings that we were going to see here uh, through this, these two chapters. But the very first covering here is one of the interior of the tabernacle, and it, it reveals uh, what uh, Moses was to do on the inside to make sure the interior furniture and, and all the workings of the, of the places where everything is going to lay out was uh, put into a nice, beautiful place here and was visible only from the inside of the tabernacle. So the people couldn't see a lot of these things that are going on. Only the priests could go into there and see what was being described. But again, it's between God and those who were representing coming in for the people that were able to see this. 
And it was all coupled together, and it's quite large. As you can see, the curtains were 42 feet long, 6 feet high, and they were to be joined together in these sets of five, and they were bringing it all together as a covering of 42 feet by 60 feet uh, uh, within, within the, the tabernacle here. Now, we can take a look here in verse 7 through 13, and we see uh, a curtain made of goat's hair that was to be given to, uh, for this purpose. And you shall make curtains of goat's hair to be a, a tent over the tabernacle, and you shall make 11 curtains. Woo! A lot of curtains that they're making here for layers. As you will see, there are layers that create the roofing over the tent. So this is what you're going to kind of describe as we look in the details here. The length of the curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the width of, the, uh, of each curtain 4 cubits, and the 11 cu curtains shall have all the same measurements, and you shall couple 5 curtains by themselves and 6 curtains by themselves, and you shall double over, uh, over the 6 curtain for the front of the tent, and you shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain on the second set, and you shall make 50 bronze clasps. But put the clasp in the loops and couple the tent together that it may be one, that it be unity. There's no open in, openings that you can peek through. It's going to be a closure. It's going to be beautiful. And the remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent and the half curtains that remains shall hang over the back of the tabernacle and a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. The key is to cover it. This, 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 Coverings that are going to be coming over. There's five and, and there's a strip on one and there's six strips on a fabric on the other side. It's going to be 45 feet long and six feet high. And it's going to, again, a very specific way there to, to arrange to make sure it is covering properly of this tent. And it's made of goat's hair. Now, verse 14, you shall also make a covering of ram skin dyed red for the tent and a covering of banger uh, skins above it. So you had the first layer of uh, curtains. Now here comes a red dyed um, uh, ben, uh, badger skins that will cover the next layer above that. This this covering of, or referred to as ram skins, or like fine leather dyed red. To, no specific, again, arrangement uh, of arrangements mentioned here of the covering. But it's that second outer layer of this skin that was to, like leather, going to be, be very durable and waterproof and resistant for the tent. So nothing, all the rain coming in, if it does rain, come in uh, into the, to the tabernacle. But these Layers of curtains were laid on one on top of the other, resulting in a very dry and very dark tent. And the only lamp, again, the only light available is the lampstand uh, provided for the holy place. But remember, God's light and presence in the most holy place is the light that's all they needed in the most holy place. They didn't have to have a lamp in there. Now we're going to talk about the framing system of the tabernacle, the boards for the insides of the tent to keep its structure and a box-like frame. It says, for all the tabernacles, you make the boards of acacia wood standing upright, 10 cubes, cubes 
cubits shall be the length of a board, and, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tenons shall be in each board for binding one another, one to another, and thus you shall make all for all the boards of the tabernacle, and you shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards of the south side, and you shall make 40 sockets of silver uh, under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. For, and for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards, and there are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards, for the far side of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six boards, and you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle, and they shall be coupled together at the bottom, and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring, and thus it shall be for both of them. They shall be for the two corners. So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, and 16 sockets, and two sockets under each board. Woo! That's a lot. But there's the framework. Those are the boards. And they're very specific how they're to do that. Again, not to compromise what God is asking them to do. You could take the easy path and say, that sounds really complicated. That sounds like it's too much work. That sounds like it's very, very over the top and too much to do that. Well, if that's what God says happens, he has an expectation for us to do it, even if it's hard. Even if it doesn't seem, why do you need this or the purpose of this? Because many times God asks us to do things that we can't understand why he would ask us to go to that degree. But God knows best. God knows what he's doing and why he does it in and through our lives and why he asks us to do certain things. We're just to be obedient, not half obedience. Because half obedience is disobedience. We're to, they were to follow the instructions very clearly. Take each of these boards that are 15 feet high and two feet, three inches wide, and they were to place those boards exactly the way they have to create the inner uh, structure of this tent. And he knows exactly right down to the number of boards, the number of braces, and everything that had to be and what needs to be coupled and everything else. Because there is a lot of weight. Structurally, there was a lot of weight of all these curtains on top of everything. We're talking, uh, you know, each board rested on a base of about 264 pounds of silver. Because remember, as we get through this, we're seeing things are decorated full of silver and gold and braces. It had to have to be structurally, it had to be sound. If you remember, silver is the metal associated with redemption and payment for sin. We see that in Exodus 21:32 and Leviticus 5 and 27 and, and numbers. We see it many places where silver is a metal associated with redemption. And we will see that as part of the design here of the tabernacle. And then we see here to bring this all together and bring all the boards, they had to bring them together by uh, making bars of acacia wood, five of the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five boards on the other side of the tabernacle and the uh, side of the tabernacle, and the five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle for, for the far side westward, and the middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end, and you shall overlay the boards with gold 
make their rings of gold as holders for the bars and overlay the bars with gold. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. You notice there? Which you were shown on the mountain. I can picture God into the details, right? Here he is, Moses. I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to show you, and then I'm going to watch you build it. Right? Hear one, see one, do one. We all know this, right? This is God's model right there. Let me tell you how this is going to be done, and I'm going to show you how to. I can picture him saying, now watch this. This is how this is all put together. And watch me. I'm raising it up. Here's the, here they all come together. Oh, by the way, this is the next layer. Here's the layers of curtain. I can see God going into that detail, showing Moses exactly what he wants to do because there was no question of the expectation. Verse 31 and 30 through 33, the veil or the screen here. You shall make a veil woven of blue and purple scarlet thread and fine woven linen, and it shall be woven in an artistic design of, of cherubim. You shall hang it, up, hang it upon the four pillars of the acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And we see here the curtain is now putting into place. And this veil that would be separating from the, the, not only from the holy place to the most holy place, but we also, obviously, we saw that the curtain out front that prevented you, you know, you had to go through that curtain to get into the, even the holy place were presented here. But you can see that the ark of the, of the testimony here in the most holy is divided from the holy place by this curtain. This, it would be, the veil shall be a divider uh, between the holy place and the most holy place as it go because only the high priest could go into the most holy place and there had to be a protection for him, I assure you, not to just go into God's presence without, uh, without uh, being prepared and called to do that. And we see this veil or this barrier, uh, no one just could just go past that. Hebrews 9.12, spiritually speaking, uh, in dying for our sins, Jesus says, With his own blood he entered the most holy place once and for all, uh, having obtained eternal redemption. Incredible verse right there. Verse 35, 34 and 35, You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the, of the testimony of the most holy, and you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south, and you shall put the table on the north side. So you can see now God is giving Moses where everything is to be placed and uh, put the mercy seat upon the, uh, the, uh, the ark. That's the only thing that's in the most of the... And the most holy, and on outside into the holy place, you see the other furniture that is represented. And there's three great things here that God is, is speaking to here. The altar of incense is placed right there in front of that, that, that veil before you go into the most holy. It represents prayer. We can see the table of showbread. We know that's part of fellowship. That is the fellowship with God. That is right there on, on one side. And then the illumination or the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. We can see there that being the lampstand, which was on the other side of the room, all within the holy place. 
Then verse 36, 37, you shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven of uh, blue and purple and scarlet thread and the fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Now, not only did the, the veil, but this, this curtain, this screen for the door had something so woven and beautifully made, it had the cherubims as part of the design in the fabric. That's incredible. If you really think of the details of that, how the people are woven these, all these fine linens and, and, and threads so that the, the cherubim that was on the mercy seat was also embedded into these curtains as you were getting ready to enter. What a beautiful Beautiful scene that must have been. But this is the only way to enter the actual structure of the tabernacle is right here. And that was to be hung. These beautiful curtains were to be hung right up there to do that. Now, yes, we're going to chapter 27. And now we're going to talk about the court of the tabernacle, which is the bigger presence or the, uh, the, uh, the 75 by 150 square uh, 75 by 150 in a big uh, rectangle-shaped uh, presence here of the overall tabernacle. And it says, You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and the altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make its horns on its four corners, and its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. So the very first structure in this court of the tabernacle was the bronze altar. The ideal was, in, in, from a Hebrew word here of altar, is, is, is a killing place. This is where they would sacrifice the animals. And it was, this is where the atonement for sin for the people or, uh, was to be made for that consecration unto God uh, was marked here at this moment at this altar when they walked into the, the tabernacle court grounds. Under the new covenant, we also have an altar. Hebrews 13.10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Our, ta all our, our altar, our killing place is where? The cross. The cross is where Jesus died for our sins and we follow by dying to self and living for Jesus. There in the tabernacle, the court, they brought their animal and that was temporary uh, bloodshed. For temporary covering, not the completely wiping out and erasing of sin, but just a covering at this point in time. Galatians 2 verse 20 and 6 verse 14 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Chapter 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So this New Testament, we know where the altar is, is Jesus Christ went to, the Lamb of God went to the altar, the cross, to die for our sins. Here in the Old Testament, what they needed to do is bring their animal and it was killed on the altar. And on that altar, that is where that, that sacrifice was done for God for the covering of their sins for the people. And the high priest did that for them at that point in time. But note that on this altar, there's 
uh, horns in each corner. There, these horns on this altar was, would be an outreach to all directions. And these horns were also a display of strength and power uh, in the sacrifice and the atoning blood that was to be applied for the whole people as it outreached. That's what those horns represented. So taking a look at the symbols of Jesus in the New Testament as, a foreshadow, as a, the result of the foreshadow here we see here, the Old Testament and the, and the altar here is note. The high priest offers the gifts and sacrifices for sins in the most holy place. That's, that's the Old Testament. They, the high priest was to do those gifts, those offerings, the sacrifice. They did it for the people. In the New Testament, Jesus is our high priest in the true tabernacle in heaven that was made by God and not man. That is the key thing we need to remember. Hebrews 9, uh, 11, again, But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with a, great, a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Again, very emphasis on those key verses, and we read those again once again for you. Exodus chapter 27, verse 3 through 8. These are the accessories for the altar. Also you shall make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans. And you shall make all its utensils of bronze and you shall make a grate for it, a new a network of bronze. And on the network you shall make four bronze rings as at its four corners and you shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath that the network may be midway up the altar and you shall make poles of the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. A bronze shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it, and you shall make it um, hollow with uh, boards as it was shown on you, uh, shown you on the mountain. You shall, uh, you shall they make it. So shall they make it. So again, why not gold? Why bronze? Because bronze could take the heat that was going to be all the burning on that altar. The gold would melt. The bronze could sustain the heat and the fire that was going to consume the, uh, the, the, um, the sacrifice on it. And they had grates and everything else. So everything was, as it was being consumed, it would fall down through the grates and it would go down underneath. And they would have these pails and shovels to clean out the ashes and take care of everything as how he described it. Now we take a look at the hangings in the perimeter of the courtyard here, verses 9 through 15. You shall also make the court of the tabernacle for the south side. There shall be hangings for the court made of the fine uh, woven linen, the 100 cubits along for one side, and its 20 pillars, uh, and their 20 sockets shall be bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their brand bands shall be silver. There's that silver that they would see. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings of 100 cubits long, and with 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. And along with the width of the cord on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. And the width of the cord on the east side shall be 50 cubits and the hangings uh, on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And on the other side shall be hangings of the 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. So uh, here they're building 150 by a 75 uh, feet courtyard. 
can you imagine from a distance this beautiful white linen curtain all the way around this, this massive structure in the middle of the camp? And then inside there is this, seven, you know, this little tabernacle right there, the holy and the most holy. It's this little tiny place and it's most basic and it's, it has the goat's hair and the coverings and stuff. It's just the doors that are these elaborate curtains. That, it's a beautiful scene. If you, if you look at the artistic um, um, examples, you can look up and see those images of what the, potentially what that could have looked like. It's, it's, it's quite beautiful here. And we see this in this courtyard. There's these um, this elaborates of, uh, of of silver and uh, white, and it's just beautiful in the midst of this this desert. Verse sixteen: The gate to the court for the gate of the court. There shall be a screen twenty cubits long, woven of blue and purple and scarlet thread, a fine woman. Lit woven linen made by a weaver and it shall have four pillars and four sockets so we see here the curtain in the to the to the most holy place and the outside of the courtyard are these beautiful woven with beautiful colors again with the with the uh, cherubims uh, represented again a 30-foot door was what is the only way you could come into that courtyard presence Verse 17, and all the pillars from the court shall have bands of silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their sockets of bronze. And the length of the court shall be 100 cubits and the uh, width 50 throughout. And the height, five cubits made of fine woven linen and its sockets of bronze and all the utensils of the uh, ut uh, tabernacle for all of its service and all its pegs and all the peg pegs of the court shall be of bronze. So all this elaborate and the pegs had the, the ropes that kept the walls up. So the ropes are on the outside on both sides to just give the leverage to keep those walls up that were quite, uh, quite elaborate there and all the silver and the weight that comes to it. Now let me just give you some, some verses out of Psalms that you may be very familiar with. Psalm 65, 4, Blessed is a man who chews and caused to approach you that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. Psalm 84, 2, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. I mean, you can go on through the Psalms of just worshiping and singing of the fact of what God has created and is sitting in the midst of his people and uh, here in the Old Testament. Under the New Testament, we, we appreciate this longing for the court of God's house, but we don't need to stop there, do we? Because we don't have to be limited as they were at that point in time in their form of worship. We can actually, because we're a child of God, because God has saved us and cleansed us, we have the ability to boldly come into the throne of God to worship Him. We don't have to. The high priest doesn't do it for us. No priest does it. No elder does it for us. We as a child of God get to go directly to the Father because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. And we can boldly come into and not go into a structure, but go into his presence in the Spirit. And he says, come to me. Come to me. Because I have come to you. Come to me. Because I have come to you. Come into my presence. And then verses 20 through 21. Now the oil 
for the lamps of the lampstand. And it says, you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend, tend it in, from evening till morning before the Lord, and it sh shall be a statue forever to their generations on the behalf of the children of Israel. So the oil of the lamps on the lampstands was the only lamp, again, the only light in the tabernacle. And the priest, um, in, in this case Aaron and his sons, were the only ones who were allowed, required to go in there and keep the oil going, keep the, uh, the, the, the wicks trimmed, because it had to be a continuous illumination there in the holy place. Uh, and according to God. And they were to use pressed olives, not beaten olives. They were to use pressed olives to, for, that, for that oil for the lamps. God uses a pressing work in the life of his people as well. We see Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4.8. He says, hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Because God was doing a work in his life. And yes, God was pressing him, not crushing Paul, to refine him, to produce this sweetness of this oil that would be used for the incense, for the lamps, and for everything that would be then bring glory and honor to God through the sacrifice or through the worship of the people there. So Aaron and his sons were responsible for that. Um, We know at the very end here, let me, last thought here, and we'll take communion. There are dark days. <laughs> there are dark days. There were dark days in that time, and there are dark days today. And in these dark times, there are many reasons why. But one of the things that we can see is the darker it gets, is means the, the, there's the more absence of what? Light. And in dark days, there's always a... When we see darkness coming over the land, or coming over your life, there seems to be a darkness. You must take note of that. And realize there's an absence of light. And when there's an absence of light, that means there's an absence of the Holy Spirit working in through your life or through that community or nation. And that God has asked or will come in and will trim the wicks of that lamps of his to make you to bring a, a brighter light from your life. And sometimes he'll have to come in and press or trim your life to have you become brighter for him in your family, in your life, but in your community. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For once you were darkness, Darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, Ephesians 5, 8. So God will come into our lives. God will do a work in our lives. He will not crush you. He will press you, and he will trim some things that are hindering you to be the brightest of lights 
for his purpose. Allow him to do that work in your life. Allow him to trim the things that are causing you not to be that bright light as a child of God for your purpose of why you're still on this earth to share the gospel and to help others to come to Christ. The more you allow him to trim you, the more he allows you to bring about a, the Holy Spirit active within your life, the brighter you are, the more effective you will be in witnessing and to ministering into your family, into your communities, and your workplaces. So we don't avoid these pressings that God does. We embrace them and say, God, what are you doing in my life? Because I want to be a brighter light for you. Why? Because it's, the days are getting darker in this nation, the darker in this community, darker in different places where we work and we play. And we must be a continuous light for God. We must illuminate. We must allow the Holy Spirit to work through our lives. That's what pleases our Lord. We are to have a sacrificial praising to Him and willing vessels that have not been coated by gold on the outside and inside. But we have been, what? Coated and transformed. Been put a robe of righteousness on you and me. Because it's Jesus' righteousness who placed his robe on us. He came in and the Holy Spirit dwells within us and has transformed and sealed us for eternity. Let us not be a light under a basket. Let us not be a light that will just quietly, dimly be there just to get by life. Let God do a fresh work in us and allow the Holy Spirit to transform us. Amen?